I love being played on by Josiah. He just sounds so good. Uh, that was my dad's favorite hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. In fact, he had it uh, framed in his office, and now I have it framed in mine. So that, that hymn's just a special thing. Side note. Anyway, my name's Brad. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we're going to get started with a question. Do you guys have this one thing that you do, like when you complete a task at home, say it's putting together Ikea, uh, which is, you put, you, if you do that and are still married, if you're married, congratulations. Um, or if it's Adam that's saying, just did his garbage disposal yesterday, which is a huge thing. Do you have this practice when you're done with it? You stand back and go, <sighs> yeah? Yesterday, uh, we, or Friday, we discovered how dirty our carpets were in our house. Uh, we pulled back one of our area rugs and we saw a difference. In contrast, they were like, oh, guess what we're doing tomorrow? And so I did the shampoo of the rugs. And as I'm taking the, the shampooer back to Home Depot, I was like, oh, it's over with. Uh, Carrie and I have this practice whenever we build something together and, and like each other at the end of it. Uh, we'll, we'll put our arm around each other at the same time. Oh, it's done. Have, we ever done. have you ever done something like that? Like, oh, it's complete. It's done. In your Bible, there is this kind of concept where you stand back from everything that you have done and you take a breath and go, oh. it's, a, it's not a breath of exhaustion. It's a breath of, oh, happiness, delightful. It, it's, it's, the work is complete and now I can sit back and simply enjoy it. Uh, today, we'll be talking a little bit about that process in Sabbath. Uh, we're in the, in the third week of our sustainable faith series where we look at the practices of Jesus. And if our goal in our lives is to be more like Christ, then we need to start practicing the same things that Jesus practiced. And one of the things that Jesus practiced was Sabbath. So when, just like breath, when you inhale, you inhale rest and Sabbath, and then you exhale something. So the inhale today is Sabbath. The exhale is prayer. And I'm very aware that those two things are, those so simple, are very difficult for us to do. It's hard for us to stop. And then, because of some things that have happened to us or some challenges that we've had with prayer, it's very hard to open up and pray again. But we'll start with this journey of Sabbath and prayer in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 31. It starts with this. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. For six days prior to this, uh, it, God made things. The scripture says there was evening, and there was morning, day, at day one, day two, day three. And we're not going to get into the whole literal days or the day age or whatever. We're just looking at the concepts that are given to us in Genesis. For six days, God created and then he looked at them and said, it was good. And then there was evening. And then there was morning. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Have you guys ever noticed that they measure their days a little different than you and I do? How do we measure days? Morning, night. Genesis goes through this. And there was evening. And then there was morning. Day one. Evening, Morning. So if we go through that concept of how we start and finish our days, what is the first thing you do for you to start your day? 
sleep. Last night, to start Sunday, you went to sleep. The day starts with rest. The very first thing you do is rest, and then you go to work, and then you get up, and then you make coffee. The very first things that Scripture says where we start should be from this place of rest. Do many of you feel rested? No, we're exhausted. We're running around everywhere. We're trying to keep up with everything. We wake up tired. We wake up behind. We wake up late. We don't rest well. But the scriptures show us this rhythm over and over that points to how to align ourselves to God's rhythm. And from that place of rest, we're invited to join in with what God is doing in the world around us. Genesis 2 continues, uh, Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done and he rested on the seventh day from everything that he had done. Was it because God was tired that he rested? Does God get exhausted? No, it was a rest of achievement. The idea of the word rest doesn't mean to kick back on your lazy boy and take a nap for the, for the rest of the afternoon. I'm, I'm getting warm, so I'm rolling up my sleeves if you're wondering what I'm doing. Uh, but it meant to take a breath and then remember with delight everything that had just happened. It was finished. Everything was done. You have just finished the Ikea thing like Carrie and I do, and we stand back. <sighs> That's over with. We're done. It's a delightful thing. And then in verse 3, he not only did he rest, but in verse 3 of Genesis 2, God blessed the seventh day and he hallowed it because on, that day, on it, God rested from all the work that he had done. What is the very first thing in, in, the, in the scriptures that God calls holy? The Sabbath. It's a day. It's a time. Many people will think that things and places and people are holy. But God says this period of time, this period of rest is different from all the others. The Sabbath day is holy. Your resting isn't holy. The day on which you rest is called holy. The day, not the activity. The time where you stop and you pause, and you remember with delight, that is holy. This is a way of saying, holy is a way of saying that this is set apart from everything else. It's different. It's distinct. It's not something that you always do. It's set apart. The Sabbath day is holy. This brings us to Exodus 20. God was serious about this Sabbath day. He gives us uh, some things to do and, and everything he says, the day of Sabbath is holy. In Exodus 20, verse eight, he's talking about the commandments. This is the commandments or the 10 sayings, uh, the 10 words. In verse eight, he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Sabbath itself means to rest or cease it's the same place where we get uh, our word for salvations and we remember that by keeping it holy. And then in verse nine, he goes into more detail. Six days you will labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It is meant as a time that is holy and set apart for God. God becomes the focus, 
not us. We don't Sabbath so that we're more productive for six days. We don't do, we do Sabbath because it benefits us. Although we will be more productive for those days. Sabbath is a time where we rest because if we learn anything from the rhythm of creation, we work best when we work from a place of rest. But God's trying to build something into the Israelites in Exodus. For 400 years, they've been working. They've been defined by how many bricks they made. And then how, many, how well they did their job. That's what defined them. They had lost their idea of rest. And so God says in the middle of the commandments, remember the Sabbath. Take a break. Unplug. And rest in the fact that you are made good from the God who made you. You don't have to work in order to gain this one's approval. You rest. In Psalm 46.10, this, this is the concept. Be still and know that I am God. You don't have to do, you're not going to qual- be qualified by how many bricks you made that day. On this day, you take those metrics and you put them aside and you rest in what God says about you. It was an act of faith of what they were doing. And they had a hard time getting a hold of this. In the desert, the people of Israel would, they'd be going out and God said, look, I'm going to provide breakfast for you in the morning with manna and it'll last you all day. And then on some days I'm going to give you quail. So you'll have manna and quail, but do this for six days. Just take what you need for that day. But on the night before Sabbath, it would have been for them Friday night because their Sabbaths were on Saturday. On the night before Sabbath, get enough equipment or enough food to last you for the Sabbath day. But what they do, they go, oh, we're going to go out and work and get all we can because we have this thing of scarcity where God won't provide because we're defined by what we're due. And so they would get all they can. They get enough for the whole week on Monday. And then on Tuesday morning, they go to their cupboards and it's all moldy. And then, but on the Sabbath, the, the night before the Sabbath, they took enough for Friday and Saturday. And when they go to the cupboard on Saturday morning, it's not moldy. Because God was serious about this. I want you to stop defining, stop worrying about your work. The Sabbath time is the time where I'm going to take care of you. This is what God's trying to instill in them. Sabbath was an act of defiance against their culture that said achievement and accomplishment were the only things that defined them. A Sabbath began with the question, God, what do you have me do instead of what do I want to do this morning or what do I need to do this morning? You see the difference of the paradigm there. God, what do you have for me instead of what am I going to do? He was changing up the way they talked about it. And so in verse 10, he says this, you shall, Exodus 20, the last part of 10, you shall do no work. How much work does that leave? And all God's people said, none. Yes, you shall do no work, which means zero. Now he continues, not you, nor your son, nor your daughter, or your slaves, or even your livestock, or the, or the residents, the alien residents in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything is in them. So if you think your work is important, God did more in six days than you did all week. So, and he rested. And on the seventh day, he blessed the Sabbath 
and made it holy. The Ten Commandments, we always look at it and say, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, that thou shalt not. And there's true. There's always a thou shalt not. But along with every other, other commandment, there's a thou shalt not, but it's followed by a thou shall. God is saying here, don't work. Pretty simple. No one attached to your house works. Even your animals, they don't work. Everybody stops. And it was people who didn't even live or weren't uh, Jewish by culture or Jewish by religion. It didn't matter. If you were in that country, if you were living there, nobody worked. It's like Chick-fil-A. Shut down. It's terrible that they shut down on Sunday because that's when you want it, right? Everything shuts down on the Sabbath day. And instead, you shall stop and you will rest. Don't work. Don't do any work. So what happened in, in Old Testament history, they got this, they were so afraid of messing up the Sabbath day that they started making laws around the law of the Sabbath. When the Israel went into exile and nations came in and took over, their, their thought was, was that they got taken over and went into exile because they didn't keep the Sabbath day. And so they had this thought, the religious leaders had this thought, that if everybody in the world who was Jewish, practicing or nationality, if they would just observe the Sabbath day, then God would come and reinstitute his kingdom over all of the earth and use Israel. And so they made a big deal about Sabbath. So they put this thing around the law. The, the law was do no work on the Sabbath, which raises the question, what's work? And so they made laws around the laws. It was called the hedge of the law to protect the law. We understand? Hedge protection. So there was the law in the middle and then a bunch of other rules around it. So they said, if we say no work, this means this, that work means that you can't look in the mirror and see a gray hair and pluck it out because that is harvesting. Do no work. Do no work means... Do no work, so we're going to go, it means you can't, you can't uh, sow your fields, you can't work in the fields. So, do no work on the Sabbath means don't spit on the ground, because if you spit on the ground and someone walks by and steps in it, which is always gross, someone walks by and steps in it, the saliva, some of you hate that word, will go into the ground and it might hit a seed, and then that seed will sprout. Then you have sown a seed and you have worked. So they built these laws around the Sabbath day that kind of took away the special meaning of it. It was a time where you were supposed to unplug and reconnect with God. It was a time where you were supposed to relax. It was a time where you were supposed to listen to God. But instead, it became more and more work because you were really concerned on whether you were working or not. You see how Sabbath day gets a little confusing for them. And so by the time Jesus comes around, the Sabbath became this point of contention and there was no delight because it became the religious police's job to walk around and make sure everything on the Sabbath was up to their level of doing it. And so Jesus gets into all sorts of trouble on the Sabbath. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, but he's not. He's just breaking their interpretation of what the Sabbath means. Jesus walked through and he validated the Sabbath at every time. 
But he gets into trouble because their idea of working became so legalistically minded that they built 1,500 laws and rules around one law and the rules, so they got lost. And in Mark 3, here's what happens. Jesus goes to somebody and he heals a person's hand on the Sabbath day. And they get all upset. They say, you have worked on the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at them and he asks them this question in Mark 3, 4. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath day? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? So Jesus asks this question. When is it okay to do wrong? Because your Sabbath day, you've lost the point of this. When is it okay to do wrong? And so we get confused about the Sabbath and we miss it too. Because our culture wants us to hurry, 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 hurry. And we miss the point of rest. Not that we're making laws around the Sabbath. But we miss the point that we're not defined by the things that we do. We miss the point that Sabbath is also a picture of our salvation, meaning that we should delight in it, in its gifts. We should delight in the giver. The Sabbath is a day that the Jews would feast, dance, sing, celebrate, tell stories, meditate on scripture, embrace stillness and solitude, and they probably would watch a little football if it was on. It was a day when you enjoyed the people around you and the gifts that you had been given. You'd cease striving. You'd stop performing. You're not accomplishing. You would stop work and you would begin in delighting the, in the God who made the world around you. You would learn to rest because he did. And that would fuel you for your next weeks of work. Sabbath is an invitation to listen to God's still small voice that won't shout over the other voices in our lives. Sometimes we get so busy and we want to hear God, but we're too busy with everything else. Sabbath is a time where you can stop those and say, God, what are you saying to me through this? God's very polite. He won't shout at his friends. But oftentimes we're so busy with our stuff that we don't take the time to get quiet and actually listen to him. God is speaking. He's constantly speaking but we're too busy to even hear it. So Sabbath is a way that we stop our type A personalities that push us and push us, and it's a way that we stop. Some of you need to take a break. You've been going for so long, and you need to rest. Some of you should take a week off, a, a day off. Some of us have been serving in the church for so long that we're, we've lost the sheer delight in what it's like to serve in a church. And so maybe some of you need to stop with that too and take a break. There's nothing wrong with taking a break. So here are some keys for Sabbath. Start where you are and take some time. If a day is too much, start with a half a day. If that's too much, take three hours. If it's still much, take an hour. If it's still too much, try 10 minutes. If that's still much, try a song on the radio where you turn everything off and you just stop for those three minutes of Sabbath and take a couple breaths. And when that gets long enough, maybe you go for another few minutes. Remember, everything is stop, start small. Some of us need to rest and disengage for the Sabbath because we can't hear God's voice 
above the noise. The problem is that sometimes when we disengage, we forget to re-engage. Sabbath is a rest from engagement, but it's always intended to step back in and re-engage. We get stuck taking a break. And uh, my friends call it rest, rest day veteran where we, we've been working, working so hard that we're really good at resting. And then we never really get back in and start working again. And so we're rest days, where the rest days become rest weeks, where the rest weeks become rest months. Sabbath is good, but Sabbath was meant to energize you to re-engage back. So the first tip is to start small. The second tip is to confess when you break the Sabbath command and then don't get all hung up about you breaking it. But, be, but confess it and then re-engage. And here's a, the last tip for it. Leave your phone. Turn your phone off. Put your phone in the drawer. Go for a walk without it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the time away. Sabbath is a time where we rest and remember the God who made us, not rest and be constantly interrupted with everybody's messages. So what would it look like for you to disengage just for an hour and rest. And then after you inhale rest and you listen to God's voice, what would it look like for us to re-engage with prayer? We breathe in rest and one of the best ways that we can join in with God and what he's doing in the world around us is simple, prayer. Prayer for many of us has uh, a lot of hangups. Perhaps you've prayed and prayed and prayed and maybe there's still no answer. Uh, maybe you've prayed for healing, maybe it's financial, maybe it's personal, but you've prayed and you've been told uh, to keep praying, but every time you ask, you receive nothing. And so you disengage, you don't wanna pray anymore. For five years, we prayed for my dad's healing. Five years, every day, prayed for him. He went to prayer groups. They went to services where they did healings. And they prayed and prayed and prayed. The answer that we wanted didn't come. Or maybe you've prayed for your friends. Maybe you've been praying to have a child. And you pray and pray and pray. And nothing happens. Maybe you pray for family members and there's still no chains. We have friends that work in oncology departments and they constantly pray for their patients and then their patients don't get the healing that they want. We pray for addictions. We pray for healings and nothing. And so prayer, because of all the things that we bring into it, we stop praying. We say it doesn't mean anything. Prayer then becomes an exercise and we, and that, in just futility. We make up cliche theology words that say prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Or prayer changes my attitudes. And after a while, it gets old. And so we try to explain why we're praying. And then we quit. Many of us have jumped off the train of prayer, so to speak. Corey Ten Boom, who spent some time in a, uh, a concentration camp, I heard a quote from her this weekend and said this. Uh, she said, when you're, when you're on a train and the train goes through a tunnel, we don't panic and throw away the ticket and jump off the train. Instead, we sit in our seat and we trust the engineer. Many of us have jumped off the train of prayer 
C.S. Lewis did. He, he said that uh, he still prayed, but he said, my prayers don't affect God, but I'm going to pray. I like C.S. Lewis, but he was dead wrong in this one. Because scriptures show us over and over that prayer does certainly change us, but that's not why we're told to engage in prayer. We're commanded to engage in prayer because it's the God-ordained way uh, of impacting God and changing our world. Jesus says in Matthew, if you pray, you can move a mountain. He did not say, if you pray, your attitude towards the mountain would change. Do you see the difference? Prayer has an effect on the God we pray to, and it has an effect on us. If you look in the Old Testament, there are more if-then clauses associated with prayer than any other single human activity. For example, it'll be on the screen. This is a popular one. Uh, Tim, the second, uh, second Chronicles 7, 13 to 15. When I shut up the heavens so that there was no rain or commanded the locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people, there's the if statement, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, then, if then, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. If we pray, God responds. The Lord's in effect saying that he wants to heal. He wants to forgive, but he's waiting for people to pray. The purpose in this passage wasn't to change the hearts of the people praying. The purpose in this passage was for the people to change the heart of God and actually heal their land. If they didn't, he wouldn't. Do you see the interplay that happens here? There are dozens of passages in the Bible, and we'll just list a few of them. Numbers 11, uh, 1 and 2, Numbers 14, uh, 12 through 20, Numbers 16, 20 35, Deuteronomy 9. Uh, 13 through 14, 18 through 20 and 25, 2 Samuel 24. All of these passages are places where God is changed because somebody prayed. Moses in Exodus 32 was up on Mount Sinai. He was getting the laws. And and when he's there, he's up there and, and God says, hey, look what the people are doing. They've made an idol out of their golden jewelry and I'm going to destroy them. And then I'm going to start over with just you and me, Moses, and we can make this thing work. Then Moses says in verse 9, or God says in verse 9, I have seen these people. And then the Lord says to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them, and I'll destroy them. And then I'll make you, Moses, a great answer, a a great nation. Look what Moses says back to them, back to God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who have brought you out, of, who you have brought out of Egypt with great power? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that, that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Then he says to God, turn from your anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham and Israel to whom you swore to yourself, I will make your descendants numerous as the stars in the sky. And then in verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring harm on the people he had threatened. God was ready, but because Moses 
interceded on behalf of the people who had done something purely wrong, God changed his position and didn't destroy them, all in response to prayer. David wrote about this time in Psalm 106. He said, so he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying Notice Moses' prayer wasn't for the purpose of changing Moses. Moses wasn't thinking, well, I'll just change my attitude here and start praying that God would change me. No, Moses was very courageous in his prayer. And what did he say? God, you're wrong on this one. Change, relent. What will people think? The Egyptians will say that you brought them out to kill them. Lord, please change your position. And then God relented. And what we see in these passages is that the prayer really makes a difference. In Ezekiel 22, God says this, I looked for someone who would build up the wall and stand before me on behalf of the land so I would, so I would not have to destroy it but I found no one. So God was searching over and over for someone to stand in the gap, someone to pray like Moses did, and he didn't find anyone. So he poured out his wrath and consumed them with fiery anger. It's clear that God did not want to judge his people, so he looked for an intercessor, someone to stand in the way like Moses did, but he couldn't find anyone. All through the New Testament, the request of people, uh, requested, the people requested Jesus to heal and Jesus responded. The biblical truth is that prayer doesn't only just change you. The picture we get about prayer all through the Old Testament and the New Testament is that prayers affect the things of God too. But then we have this tension. I prayed for my dad and didn't get what we wanted. Sometimes your prayers don't get answered in the way that you want your prayers answered, but it doesn't mean that you stop praying. We live in a world that is plagued by the spiritual. Uh, We have warfare going on all around us. God has a will. God wants to heal. But there are things, and this sounds a little bit Lord of the Rings and Star Wars-ish, I know, but there is spiritual warfare that we engage in every time we pray. In Daniel 10, he's praying for an answer and he prays and prays and prays and then he gets frustrated and he gets mad that God's not responding. And it's this weird verse in Daniel 10 and uh, Gabriel comes down and says, Daniel, I'm sorry it's taken so long. I've been fighting with the prince of Persia, another name for a satanic body. I've been fighting with them to bring your answer. I had to call for some backup and they're taking the fight. Here's your answer. I got to get back up there where I was going. And then he leaves. And you read that in Daniel. I'm like, what? That happened? Sometimes we pray and pray. We don't get our answers because there's another thing happening around us where there's a will that is out to thwart God's will. We live in the tension of now God's presence is here wanting to intervene. And then we have the tension of Not yet. But when we pray, we enter into that warfare and we start asking God to show up in these places. And he desires to answer, desires to give you. He says uh, in Luke, whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. 
you will have done for you. It's hard to believe, especially when we don't get the answers we want. But it doesn't mean that we stop praying because we don't get the answers we want. Is it harder to pray? Yes, there will be seasons where it's totally difficult to pray. Dad died in January two years ago, and it probably took three, two, three months for me to have the courage to pray again because I was a little bit ticked off. And that's okay. But we still pray. Praying is a way that we engage in what God is doing. So we take a step back in Sabbath and we hear what God is saying and then we take a step forward and re-engage in prayer and we ask God, what is he doing in this place? Some of us don't Sabbath and many more of us don't pray. But the command is to pray for other people. If we look in the Old Testament, intercessory prayer, which is the cool Christianese word for praying for others, not you, is something that God responded to all over the place. And, but prayer helps quiet our own anxieties. Prayer gets us to move beyond our own places of hurt. Praying for other people, not just praying for your parking place, will allow your eyes to see what God is doing in the world around you. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, most prayer that we see is geared towards somebody else, somebody else's transformation. So today, what would it look like for you to pray for somebody? What would it look like for you to go through your brains and think this person is going through this hard time? Prayer does this for you. It gets your eyes off of you and puts your eyes onto somebody else. Who do you need to pray for? Intercession is more than just asking for requests. We're begging God's awareness on a particular topic or a particular person. And it's not that God's not aware it's just that he's wanting us to be aware of it as well. God's very aware of people's sufferings. In Exodus, before he takes Moses and the people out of Israel, he says these words to Moses. Moses, I've heard them. I see them. And then I want to do something about them, so I'm sending you to do this. When we pray, God sends us to do things. God works through us to do things. But how? Here's four uh, tips. These things are very theological, and I'm trying to make them practical. So here's four tips to having a better prayer life. You ready? Powerful prayer starts with listening and attuning to what God is already saying and doing. We have our own ideas when we pray. But there's something to looking at somebody or thinking about somebody and saying, God, what are you wanting to do in this place? God always wants to heal. God is a God who wants to bless. God is a good God who gives good gifts and he's always wanting to do this. But we need to stop and listen and see what is happening here that we can join in with God and what he's doing through prayer and listen to see what he says to us. When I pray for somebody, I like to put my hand on them, on their shoulder or someplace and stop and then listen. God, what are you doing here? And sometimes it comes this, pray for this. Oftentimes, nothing happens. And so I pray for the request. So how can we start praying is simply ask God what he's doing around us. The second tip, don't be cliche. 
If you say I will pray for you, then do it. How many times have you heard, I'm going to pray for you? Or how many times have you said, I'm going to pray for you, and then you don't? If you say you're going to pray for somebody, write it down and follow up. Tip three, prayer calms the anxious heart. Philippians says, uh, don't worry, but in everything, pray. So where are you anxious? Pray. Tip four, write it down. Write down what you've been praying for. That way, when you see God moving, you know that he responded to prayer. It might not be tomorrow. God's idea of efficiency is way different than ours. He, Moses waited for 40 years and then waited for another 40 years. And Abraham waited for 40 years. God takes a while and that's okay. That's why we write it down. I've been praying about this for so long and this is how God moved. And it might not be in the way you expect. I prayed that we would move to Texas or Arizona because the golf is better and it's warm. We're here. Not, it's complete opposite of those two places. Golf is good. Uh, but we prayed and prayed and prayed. God's answer was different than ours and God's answer is better than what we had ever desired or wanted. Pray and write it down. So here's the challenge for you this week. Once a day this week, Will you step away from blank in order to step towards prayer? Once a day, 10 minutes, five minutes, three minutes, a day, a couple hours. Will you step away from the thing that you're doing? Turn off your devices, shut down your television, take the books away, and will you engage God in prayer? That's your challenge for the week. Pray with me. Father, we, we know that you want us to pray, that you respond to our prayers. And so, Lord, we come to you and we pray. We ask for healing. We ask for direction. We ask for you to speak into those places where it's just deafening with silence. And Lord, prayer brings up a lot of hurt for us. For many, the praying for so long and no answer, no results. And so, Lord, we pray for comfort. In those places of ache, in those places where, they've, where we've been broken, Lord, we pray that you would heal. We pray that you would bring your touch that only your spirit can bring to those places that are dry and broken. Lord, when we don't understand, when, we're, when the train of our life has gone through the tunnel, God, may we not jump off, but may we sit back and trust what you're doing. Lord, may we re-engage with prayer, but God, may we also take a break. May we see where we're too busy, where we're defining our lives by the things that we do or our accomplishments or our to-do list. But may we take a break and sit back, take a breath, and remember that no matter what we do, no matter our accomplishment, no matter how many bricks that we put together, that you made the world and everything's in it, but you still took a rest. So Lord, may we engage through prayer, and may we rest through our Sabbaths. 
it's in your name we do pray. Amen.